we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. So let me read to you from Galatians 5, the verses 16 to 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So we've talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person, and as such He is indivisible. And so you cannot just um, ask for more of the Spirit as if you were to fill up a glass. More of the Spirit, more of the Spirit. You either have Him or you don't. So what you actually do when you say, I want more of the Spirit, you are actually saying, I'm giving the Spirit permission to have more of me, to have more control. And we talked last week about the fact that his major work in us is the work of transformation, changing us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a lifelong process, pouring out his nature into us to replace our old nature, which we are to consider dead, of no value to God whatsoever. And so, little by little, as the Holy Spirit gains control of us, we change in the way we think and the way we talk and the way we act, and we begin to reflect the nature of Christ in us. And we become what the Bible calls temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, not just a dwelling place where God lives, but also a place where people come to meet God, because after all, that is the function of a temple. And people begin to see God in us, visibly, in the way we live. And that is God's ultimate goal, that we, together with all the Christians born-again Christians around the globe form together a dwelling place of God, a temple where God lives, a holy nation, and God no longer dwells in a building of brick and mortar. We call this place a house of God, a church. We have churches all over the place, but God doesn't live in this church. He lives in you, and you are the church. And if this building was ever taken away from you, it doesn't mean that God has to, place, has to find another place to live. He lives in you and continues to live in you. And what that looks like on the outside, what people see in you, is what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let me talk about that for a second, because a lot of us make the mistake of talking about the fruits of the Spirit. We call, we call it the fruits of the Spirit, and that is not entirely correct. So I bought a little bit of breakfast here with me to show you what I mean. And for that I need to show you this orange. Um, essentially, there's a difference between fruit and fruits. So I'll put that right here so you can see. Um, and uh, I won't put that there because that makes a mess. But essentially, um, 
What the fruits are, are individual works that we do for God. You know, these are individual fruits. These are, I actually have some napkins here, but thank you very much, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, these are individual fruits, you know, so you could say in a, in a sense, well, here's my tithe, and there's a painting kid zone, and this is the gardening I did, and look, this big one is what I gave to the foundation. And <laughs> <laughs> these are the individual fruits. Um, God has called us to go forth and bear fruits. That is these, you know, the Bible says fruit, but it's plural, it's fruits. Individual works that stem from the nature that God put in you. Individual actions, um, and that's what you bear. But the fruit of the Spirit is entirely something different. This is one fruit. But if you take it apart, you see that other, unlike these grapes, this particular fruit consists of individual segments. This is where it gets messy. <laughs> so, you know, this doesn't want to come apart clean, but here's one segment of this particular fruit. And if I taste this particular fruit, hmm, tastes orange, tastes good. Now this one looks a little bit different. It's still part of the same fruit. I wonder if it tastes different. <laughs> no. <laughs> it tastes exactly the same. It has a lot of juice in it. And that is essentially what the fruit of the Spirit is. They're segments of one fruit, essentially. The fruit is the nature of Christ in us. And there's different segments to the different components that we'll see in a minute as far as how that works and how that is invisible. But what is important to remember is that every segment has the exact same substance and look and texture and taste and what have you of this whole fruit. And the different segments are interconnected. Now these grow all like individually, they're different sizes, uh, they grow maybe at a different pace. What you have with this particular fruit is when you put a peel around it, this is an orange, it grows together at the same time. All these different segments grow together at the same time. You can't have an orange whereby one segment grows about halfway, the other one three quarters of the way, etc. They all grow together at the same time and they're interconnected. They're in interdependent, if you will. And that is important to know because it means that if you look at the different segments of the fruit of the Spirit, you can't have the joy of the Lord um, and have kindness, for instance. You have to have both. Yeah, there, there is not the possibility that you can have peace without also patience. All of those things must be evident in you together to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, and they grow together. This orange once was <coughs> not very tasty. It was small and green and, and, and hard and sour, more than likely. Uh, but it was still a fruit, and the different segments were growing inside of it. It's like the same way with a born-again Christian. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you are what you call a baby Christian, in a sense. And you begin to grow, and in the beginning, these, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't exhibit itself very strongly. It's still in embryo form, and it begins to grow, and it takes your whole life.
for the fruit of the Spirit to grow into this where it becomes very clearly visible far more than your old nature which has been crucified with Christ. So that's a lifelong growth process and it's important to remember that as you grow all of these nine segments of the fruit of the Spirit grow together in you at the same time, at the same pace. So that when you have love then by the definition there must be also patience. When there is joy, there must also be peace, etc. So that is important for us to know. Um, we read in this passage that the fruit of the Spirit is the direct opposite of the flesh, and so that gives an interesting question, doesn't it? It poses a question. Namely, can a person be joyful, patient, kind, faithful, gentle, etc., and not be born again. Because you see people all around you that are not Christians, that seem to be joyful and patient, sometimes more patient than you are, and, and seem to have peace about things. But the question is, yet to a certain degree, they can be. But it's always going to be still riddled with the works of the flesh. Maybe there are elements of patience, but also elements of envy and strife, etc., etc., the fruit of the Spirit comes directly from the nature of God which was placed in you. And as such, it has no taintedness, no defilement, no impurities, because it comes from God. And so this is pure. The kind of things that you have growing within you, the love that you have growing within you, the patience you have growing within you, the joy you have growing within you, the kindness you have growing within you, in some ways may look like the kindness and patience that you see from maybe Buddhists or people that don't even, don't even believe in God but are just good people, but yet they are different because the origin is different. Yours are growing in you from the nature of God and they grow to be imperishable and they're undefiled and they replace those other works the works of the flesh a person that is not born again and uh, who still has the works of the flesh but exhibits what looks like the fruit of the spirit will never be able to replace those unless they become born again those works of the flesh will also always be with them does that make sense? because sometimes Christians get frustrated like you know they look at I think about my younger brother-in-law, for instance, my wife's younger brother, and for years and years and years, he was not a Christian. But he was the kindest, most generous, uh, the nicest guy you ever met, and he was the kind of guy you said, you ought to be a Christian. He is nicer than most Christians that I know. How is that possible? Eventually he did become a Christian, but there is that element that the works of the flesh were also there in great measure and he did not have the in, in ability to replace those as we those as we do or, or rather as the Holy Spirit replaces those in us by the fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit then um, comprises the character of Christ. So this is what Jesus looked like. Um, this is what the nature of God looks like. And so by, by definition, this becomes the blueprint of what he wants us to look like. I mentioned already that fruit grows very slowly. It's, it takes a lifetime to develop within us the fruit of the Spirit. Um, here's the hope that we have in case we run out of patience with our own spiritual growth. 
when we hold on to Christ by walking closely <coughs> with Him, by walking with the Spirit, as we talked about last week, He is the one who develops it within us, in His way and in His pace. I've often used the illustration of uh, John chapter 15, the, the vine and the branches, where Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like this, that I am the vine and you are the branches. The illustration is based on a, a Jewish vintner of his time who would cut a, an unhealthy <coughs> branch off of an unhealthy vine, take that branch and engraft it onto a healthy vine. And what he would do then is he would plant that vine onto, or plant that branch on the vine and bind it up with kind of linen and cloth bandages and keep pouring water onto those bandages. And underneath the nourishment of the water and underneath the protection of those bandages, this little branch would start to grow fibers that would grab onto the vine. And as soon as those little, little fibers would grab onto the vine and hold on to it and become enmeshed with the vine, the vine could then start pushing sap, life-giving sap, into the branch. And it would strengthen the branch and the branch would produce fruit. And Jesus said, the branch itself is incapable of producing fruit. And the evidence is this. After a while, the vintner would take that bandage off. And if the branch had done its work of grabbing onto the vine with all it had and growing little fibers in there, then it would be strong and it would be enmeshed with the vine and fruit would begin to grow. If it hadn't done that, then the vintner would take those bandages off, the wood would be dry and full right off. It would be dead and useless. And so all that is required of us in this process of growing fruit is to hold on to Christ with all that we have. We talked about that a little bit, of how we do that. Not quench the Spirit, but walk in step with the Spirit. Be in communion with God every day. Read the Word every day. Let Him speak to us. Hold on to the presence of God with all that, he, all that we have. And the result is that we then give the opportunity for Jesus divine to push His life-giving sap into our souls and produce the fruit of the Spirit. We do not have to do that. In fact, we are incapable of, do that, of doing that. All these nine segments of the fruit of the Spirit cannot be produced by remodeling, by therapy, by changing ourselves or, or trying to change the way we think. It will not work. Only God can produce these fruit within us. They are the visibility of His nature in us. The source of the fruit is external. It comes from God and not internal, a remodeling of our old self. So let's have a look at these nine segments of the fruit of the Spirit and see what they look like a little bit. First, there's love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What do you think about when you think love? What immediately leaps to mind is 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't it? 1 <coughs> Corinthians 13 is love. When you look at that, you hold that up as a mirror, you think, I can never do that. That kind of love does not exist in our own flesh. If I were to describe it, I don't want to take the time to read the whole passage, but if I were to describe it, I would use three words that the love of God, as described in 1 Corinthians 13, is completely unselfish, completely unconditional, and completely sacrificial. We don't have that 
in our flesh. We will only go so far in loving people. We have to uh, reach for something outside of us to be completely unconditional, unselfish, and sacrificial. We had somebody living with us for about eight months this past year, and this person was one of those what you call EGR person. You know what an EGR person is? Extra grace required. <laughs> <laughs> Fill in the blanks. <laughs> and this person was at times very, very hard to love. Had come from a hard place in his life. Was very self-absorbed. Uh, was not inclined to help us out around the house. Uh, and what have you. Uh, it was drained. And there were times when you know, we would sit in our room going like, you know, and, and you basically need to turn that into prayer and saying, Lord, I need to love this man with your love in me because I don't have it. Might as well be honest, I don't have it. I've run plump out of patience or anything else that is required to love this person. I need your love poured out into me to love this person. At times, that may be the case in your marriage. I need, to, I need to have your love to love my husband or my wife or whatever. An external source, God's love, 1 Corinthians 13 love that is completely unselfish, completely unconditional, and completely sacrificial, that gives itself away. Then we go over to joy. What is joy? Joy is a deep-seated contentment and emotional wellness that is not rocked by any circumstances or adversity. And that is different from happiness. Happiness comes from maybe possessions or circumstances or things that go well for us. They make us happy. So a happy person would be very happy, I guess, when they receive the new car. That car would make them happy. And they take it out for a drive on their first day of the new car, and what do you know, fender bender, and the thing gets smashed up. That's where the happiness ends. A joyful person would receive a new car and say, Thank you, Lord, for providing this wonderful car uh, for me. This is your car, and I'm here to use it. He takes it out for a test drive, same thing happens. Fender bender. And he turns to God and said, Lord, there is a big dent in your car. <laughs> <laughs> but the joy does not please him in any way, shape, or form. Because, you see, the joy is not rooted in the circumstances or possessions or the lack thereof. The joy is rooted in God. It's a delight in God. And God is unchanging. If the object of your joy is unchanging, then the joy itself is unchanging. That is the joy that God gives. It's a joy in Himself. Along with that comes peace. Peace is complete calm in the midst of any storm, which is rooted in the firm belief that God is in control. All of us know storms in our lives, some more than others. Um, some of you have come from aiding people that were in a literal storm, and those people have known the horrors that a storm can do, but we have figurative storms, adversity, suffering, things that are difficult. The fruit of the Spirit is peace in the midst of the storm. When Jennifer was first diagnosed with cancer, 
we did not run around in a panic going, oh no, my life has come to an end. What? How can you do this to us? How can you bring this difficulty to us? We're trying to serve you in any way that we can. This is not fair, blah, 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 blah. And people would come to her and say, you know, we don't understand why you are so calm. This would freak me out if I would go to the doctor and you said, you have breast cancer. That would freak me out. And she sort of threw up her hand and said, well, God is in control. I know that he has allowed this for a purpose. Peace is Jesus. Looks like Jesus asleep in the back of the boat while the disciples are straining themselves against the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And they're afraid, very much afraid, that the boat is going to go under. They see the worst case scenario unfold and they finally go, wake up Jesus. And Jesus stretches and yawns and and saunters to the front of the boat and he raises his hand and says the waves be still and then goes back to sleep after telling them O ye of little faith because he knew who was in control he had no fear of the storm so peace is this complete calm that is bathed in the knowledge that God is in control and that nothing happens in your life that is coincidental or that is outside of God's control or outside of God's ability to cope for you. <coughs> Along with love and joy and peace comes patience. That's the hard one. Patience. Sometimes we wish we'd be, you know, maybe this patient one is missing or maybe it's the little one at the top that's a lot smaller than the other ones, but you know, you all know the jokes, Lord, I want patience and I want it now. <laughs> um, and it seems to be especially difficult because we live in a generation that's pacing up and down in front of the microwave because the food is cooking too slow. Have you ever done that? I stare at the microwave, is it done yet? I have news for you, it doesn't cook any faster when you stare at it, in fact it goes slower. But everything in this society that we live in is instant. We want everything now. I mean, we have cell phones. You know, we want to be able to talk to people now. I want to receive my email now. I don't want to wait and check it at home, and, and etc., etc. Et we are in a very fast-paced society where there is no patience. Patience, as the fruit of the Spirit, has two components to it. First of all, there's patience with people, and that's hard. That's that extra grace required. Patience with people is patience with the mistakes that they make perhaps over and over and over again. Mistakes that may bother you and hurt you or inconvenience you in some ways, but they are being made over and over again. Patience says to those mistakes, it's okay, eventually you'll learn it. I have made mistakes too. I don't know about you, but I marvel at the patience that God has with me, and I'm very grateful that God is a patient God, or I wouldn't stand a chance. I look back on 25 years or so of ministry, and I've had to learn the same lessons over and over and over again, and every time you learn a little bit more, and you go like, why didn't I learn that the first time? And somehow we have to learn it again and again and again, and God has to engineer the circumstances of your life and so that you will learn it again, and it takes a lot of effort on the part of God, but God is patient because He knows that as He continues to do this, His fruit in me will grow. 
in the same way we are to be patient with people. Then there's also patience with time, which is equally difficult at times. We have to learn to be patient with God's timing. And God always is a little bit slower than we want Him to be. He is often the God of the last moment, of the eleventh hour, when we want to know what's ahead in the future, but God reveals it to us at the very last minute. Why? Because He wants us to trust Him. At times we have to wait for an answer to prayer. Why? Because God may be working upstream to create the answer and where we are expecting an instant answer. We want to pray and we say, God, do this and do that and we want it now. But it may take time to do that. When the people of Israel were getting ready to cross the River Jordan for the final time and go into the Promised Land, they had to wait at the, at the banks of the River Jordan. And of course they were eager and anxious to get to the other side, but the river was in flood stage and so they couldn't cross because there was not enough, um, it was too deep for them to cross, it wasn't safe for them to cross, so God told them, told them to wait and build an, an, uh, an altar and wait until he gave the signal. And in the meantime, what they could not see was that God was working upst upstream to cause that um, river to lose its flow and lose its depth so that they could cause cross safely. So often in our lives, we ask God for something and we want to see it happen right now and we have to wait and we have to wait and we have to wait. Why? Because God is waiting upstream. He is preparing the answer to our prayers for us and He is preparing us for the answer to that prayer. And that takes time. But we want it now. George Mueller of Bristol, who is one of the famous classic saints, who is famous for his prayer life and his faith in God, prayed for his childhood friend who never knew Christ for 65 years, three times a day, before the man finally came to Christ. That is patience with God's timing. So God builds that patience in us. As we understand God more and His timing more and people more, we become more patient with God and with other people. <coughs> then there's kindness. Ephesians 2 verse 7 says, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable kindness, riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Grace and kindness kind of go together. Uh, what it is, is it's doing good to others in undeserved mercy. You often see in the New Testament grace and kindness together in one sentence because it is one and the same thing, namely that none of us sitting here today deserve God's mercy. We deserve to be snuffed out before Him because of our sin and because of our sinfulness as human beings. But yet, God chose us to give the gift of righteousness, to, con to adopt us into His household as His children and to walk with us, etc., and to give us daily blessings, and I could go on and on, none of which is deserved. That is grace, and that is kindness. Some of you may have seen in the last few years that there's been kind of a movement around the Christian community called Random Acts of Kindness. And uh, what people would do is they would come across uh, somebody who had parked his car in downtown and the parking meter was empty, and before the meter maid came, uh, they would put some quarters in there for that person. Didn't even know who the person was, but put a little note 
uh, under the windshield saying the meter was hungry, so I fed it for you. <laughs> or people would pay the, the bill of the, um, of the car in front of them in the drive-through. As they would go up to the window, uh, the first thing they would say, you know, the car that just came through, give me the bill for them and just tell them that when they receive their food it's being paid for. Things like that. Random acts of kindness. You have no idea who those people are. They may not have done anything for you at all. But they deserve your kindness. And that is the crux of it. Is that so often our good deeds in our flesh depend on what other people have done for us. If you do something for me, then I'll do something for you. The kindness that comes from God says, no, 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 I'll do something for you, whether I receive anything in return from you or not. That doesn't matter. Then there is goodness. And goodness has something to do with purity of motive. Know how in the New Testament, here and there, God it's said that God weighs our motives. God is deeply interested in the motives with which we do things. And goodness does things out of a purity of motive. It's investing in the well-being of others out of a purity of motives. Not for what we can get out of it, but for giving glory to God and genuinely being interested and excited in the well-being of that other person. Then there's faithfulness, and faithfulness is dependability, even in adverse circumstances at times. And that is hard sometimes too. It means sticking with someone no matter what, <coughs> and following through on promises made. Do you know that your voicemail, your voicemail greeting, as people call you, most of the time makes a big liar out of you? What does it say most of the time? Thank you for your call. There's line number one. <laughs> your call is important to me. There's line number two. Leave a message and I will call you back as soon as I can. There's line number three. Because most of us never call back, right? Faithfulness is that when you make a promise, even if it is as small as saying on your answering machine, I'm going to call you back, that you're actually going to do it. A couple of years ago, somebody that lived on our street when we uh, lived in, in Southern California lost a son in a car accident, their little son, and they were beside themselves with grief. And years later, as we had walked with them for a little while and then moved away, years later we saw them again and we asked how they were. And, and they have turned away from the Christian faith and, and embraced Buddhism. And we asked why. And they said, we cried out for people to walk through the journey with us. And everybody was with us for about two weeks. And then they went back to their lives. We needed somebody or somebodies to walk with us through two, three, five years of grief and take us by the hand and sustain us. <coughs> and nobody was willing to do that. Faithfulness says, let me take you by the hand. I'm going to stick with you. Not until it's inconvenient for me, not until I don't feel like it anymore, but because God is faithful to me. What would happen if God's faithfulness depended on my attitude? I'd be in big trouble, wouldn't I? Or until God said, you know what, it's really not convenient for me to answer your prayers anymore, so I ain't going to do it. Sorry. Call again tomorrow. We'd be in a heap of trouble. We take for granted the faithfulness of God. Well, the faithfulness of God in us makes us faithful to other people as well. 
Then there is gentleness. Gentleness is not being a doormat. Gentleness is strength under control. It's correcting, discipline, giving leadership, defending others with strength that does not lose its temper, that does not lose control. Um, gentleness is what characterized the leadership of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was extremely powerful and strong. But he clothed it in gentleness. It's a little bit like, you know, the voice of God, isn't it, when Elijah uh, was out alone in the desert and the voice of God was not in the, in the storm and it was not in the earthquake, the powerful, destructive things, but it was in a gentle whisper of a breeze. The God of the universe clothed his voice in a gentle breeze. That is what gentleness is like. And so somebody who exhibits the fruit of the Spirit exhibits that type of gentleness. Strength, but under control. And then there's um, self-control. And self-control has to do with controlling your emotions, your impulses, your desires, control of the tongue, control of the body. I don't know about you, but I need a lot of that. A lot of that. I don't have a whole lot of willpower um, when it comes to a lot of things, and so I need the fruit of the spirit. I need that self-control to strengthen my will to say no to certain temptations and to control what I say and what I think and what I allow into my head, etc., etc. All of that comes from the spirit of God who then occupies those faculties in our mind and in our brain. And so all of these things combined is really our attitude towards other people in relationships. And that is what makes God visible. It's the nature of God that flows through it, His character. And it focuses our thought life away from ourselves and upward towards God and <coughs> outward towards other people. That's what the heart of it. Self-absorption and the fruit of the Spirit do not mix. They do not go together. Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. So, basically, by what you exhibit on the outside, it should be clearly demonstrated whether or not you are a Christian or not. By your fruit you will be known as a Christian or not. And so if you have these things in you in a growing measure, it is tangible evidence that you are a born-again Christian, that the Holy Spirit of God indwells you and lives in you. There is an element of practice on our side, and that is that we need to be intentional in crucifying the flesh that's in verse 24, which means that you consider everything that your flesh is as dead as of no consequence to God and therefore not worth investing in. And walking in step with the Spirit, which we've talked about earlier on, prayer and engagement with the Word and obedience of the Word. And if we do that, the promise is that you will inherit the Kingdom of God once it comes to its full fruition. God will become visible in you. Now next week, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and the Church. We're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit and how the Spirit moves in a corporate body, and that should be very, very interesting. I have some things to share on that which you may not have thought of. Let's pray together, and then you can go see Elizabeth and sign up for <laughs> what she wants you to do. She's not going to let you leave otherwise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your nature 
in us. I look at my own flesh, Lord, and I think there is no hope beside the fact that you have placed your nature inside of me to replace what I used to be with your nature, your love, your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness, your gentleness, your self-control. And I want that to grow. And I pray that you help each and every one of us to walk with you, to not quench the spirit, to crucify the flesh and its desires, and to give full sway to your spirit to cause your nature to grow within us so that people will look at us and will meet God, will see the nature of God and become thirsty for an encounter with Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you.